Engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Let me start with my generation, with the, the grandparents out there. You are our living link to the past. Tell your grandchildren the story of struggles waged at home and abroad, of sacrifices freely made for freedom's sake, and tell them your own story as well, because every American has a story to tell. I'm going to work my heart out from now until Election Day uh, to defeat my opponent and to help return sound constitutional government to all the people. I will keep America moving forward, always forward, for a better America, for an endless, enduring dream and a thousand points of light. This is my mission, and I will complete it. So help me God. The totalitarian era is passing. Its old ideas blown away like leaves from an ancient, lifeless tree. A new breeze is blowing, and a nation, refreshed by freedom, stands ready to push on. There's new ground to be broken, and new action to be taken. Saddam Hussein's unprovoked invasion, his ruthless, systematic rape of a peaceful neighbor, violated everything the community of nations holds dear. The world has said this aggression would not stand, and it will not stand. The coalition used overwhelming air power to defeat a brutal dictator and free a nation. Our armed forces fought with honor and valor. And as president, I can report to the nation, aggression is defeated, the war is over. That there is no no animosity. The Cold War days are over. If it is possible, I want to continue to build a lasting basis for U.S.-Soviet cooperation for a more peaceful future for all mankind. President Bush is in trouble, and the economy is the reason. He was daring and courageous, always seeking new adventures and new challenges. He was humble and quick to share credit. He deflected attention from himself and refused to brag about his accomplishments. He trusted others and inspired their loyalty. And above all, he found joy in his family and his faith. Nothing made him happier than being surrounded by his wife, children, and grandchildren in a place where he had so many wonderful memories. George H.W. Bush set an example for many people in many ways. He is determined to live his life to the fullest, to the very end.
I'm Eric Erickson. This is Atlanta's Evening News on WSB. The nation mourns the passing of the 41st President of the United States, George Herbert Walker Bush, only the 19th state funeral in our nation's history, happening today in Washington, D.C., assembling all of the living presidents and every single living vice president. Uh, going back to the Carter era, Carter and Mondale were there. Uh, Clinton and Gore were there. Obama and Biden were there. Pence and Trump were there. Dick Cheney was there, along with George W. Bush. The nation mourning today, coming together in a rare act of bipartisan comedy to memorialize and honor uh, the 41st president. You know, I said comedy, but uh, comedy would work as well with Alan Simpson and some of the things George W. Bush said today. One of the morals of the story today at the funeral for George H.W. Bush is we all need a friend like Jim Baker. I once heard it said of man that the idea is to die young as late as possible. At age 85, a favorite pastime of George H.W. Bush was firing up his boat, the Fidelity, and opening up the three 300-horsepower engines to fly, joyfully fly, across the Atlantic with the Secret Service boats straining to keep up. At age 90, George H.W. Bush parachuted out of an aircraft and landed on the grounds of St. Anne's by the Sea in Kennebunkport, Maine, the church where his mom was married and where he worshiped often. Mother liked to say he chose the location just in case the chute didn't open. <laughs> in his 90s, he took great delight when his closest pal, James A. Baker, smuggled a bottle of Grey Goose vodka into his hospital room. Apparently it paired well with the steak Baker had delivered from Morton's. And in the, the more formal story goes that James Baker had with him in his coat pocket a martini shaker where he made martinis in the hospital for he and George Herbert Walker Bush, who famously in retirement, he and Baker would have martinis at 1030 in the morning if the mood struck him. Uh, what a guy he was. And it it, it is striking, whether, whether you want to believe it or not, whether you like to think about it or not, it is striking to hear all of the... Uh, warm stories from across the aisle about George H.W. Bush uh, that you don't get anymore. And I, I think even um, Chris Wallace on Fox News pointed out how the mood suddenly changed among the various presidents and vice presidents when Donald Trump showed up today. Uh, and it did, it, noticeably so. Um, smiles in another room. Although I do have to say the media is making a, a vastly bigger thing out of Hillary Clinton's uh, frozen look uh, straightforward than it would have been. She actually turned and nodded and smiled when Donald Trump and Melania Trump showed up. Although you would never know that from media coverage. I was actually watching that portion of the of the funeral. Um, it, it just is a monumental man. 
And I want to play some of the other sound bites from today before we move on to other stories. We do need to get into uh, the Mueller investigation and Mike Flynn's plea. We now have the documents. There are now some very, very curious redactions from those documents. There was also the runoff last night. What does this tell us about the future of the Republican Party in Georgia? Some good news and some bad news there and some issues moving moving forward for the new Secretary of State as well. And also, I, I do this every year around this time. Why December 25th is actually the day we celebrate Christmas? Believe it or not, contrary to what many of you, myself included, learned growing up, it has nothing to do with pagan Roman holidays. And candy canes have been banned from a school this Christmas time. Why? Because if you turn them upside down, they look like a J for Jesus. And a principal says, separation of church and state. Oh, I've got the details for you when we come back. It is 25 after the hour. Uh, To the phones we go. Sam from Woodstock, you're up first tonight. Welcome. Hi, Eric. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. It's just a a quick question. Do you think uh, George H.W. Bush is comparable to any past U.S. president? Um... The closest, honestly, that I would probably come is is John Adams, and he hated that comparison. Really? Why? Uh, Well, and it it has nothing to do with John Adams' son uh, also being elected president. Um, The reason I say that is because of the military diplomatic training of the two. Um, Adams, of course, had been an ambassador in France and then to the court of St. James in London, uh, trying to build support for the Revolutionary War in Europe uh, before after the war, then becoming uh, the ambassador in London before coming home for Washington to be his vice president. Uh, Bush, of course, was our first ambassador to China, the liaison. He was also the ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, In addition to having fought in World War II, he, um, gosh, was the CIA director. He was the chairman of the Republican National Committee. He could have gone anywhere. This is a story I didn't know until today. He could have gone anywhere he wanted in the world as ambassador, and Ford was willing to put him wherever he wanted to go, and he chose China. Uh, very much like Adams could have gone anywhere he wanted to go in any position after the Revolutionary War, and they sent him to London at his request to try to mend fences with the British. And then, of course, his son oh. did become uh, president of the United States, much like uh, Adams' son, John Quincy Adams, became. Uh, these two men, I think, were over-prepared for the office of the presidency. And then, of course, both of them famously only served one term, being beaten out uh, by the other party, in part because both of them were perceived as having no heart. Um, and I, I, I think there's a strong comparison there. Now, George H.W. Bush famously hated that comparison, saying once that uh, John Adams uh, loved Latin and had a command of the English language, neither of which could ever be said about him. <laughs> <laughs> always self-deprecating but I, I I do think it's 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 apt uh, when we come back a few more sound bites before we move on we'll also take your phone calls 404-872-0750 1-800-WSB talk and we got to get into the Flynn investigation the election last night and why Christmas is on December 25th Believe it or not, I'm going to shake up the order of stuff here because several listeners on Twitter have said, we're in the car. We want to hear this. Please do this now. (laughs) 
I could be cruel and make them wait, but I won't. Won't. Uh, so every year I do this. I tend to do it on on the first day of the month, and I I'm waiting until now, largely because. We've been distracted with the funeral, and we'll get back to the funeral here in a minute. But why is Christmas on December 25th? If you learned it like I learned it, uh, you learned it that uh, there was the Roman holiday of Saturnalia. And it was at the end of December. And ultimately, Emperor Aurelian uh, was a big proponent of Sol Invictus, uh, the Feast of the Unconquered Sun. And he set the date for Sol Invictus on December 25th and Christians decided to co-opt that and say, look, look, Jesus is the unconquered son. And this is his birthday. Not, not this unknown God's um, birthday. And that's why we have December 25th. We all learned it that way. And that's not actually true. And and I started studying this before I was in seminary. And then afterwards uh, really delved into early church history and the theory doesn't hold up. And by the way, you should know that the theory never really developed until the 12th century. It was largely abandoned until the 18th and 19th century as, as German theology became more and more centered around atheism instead of Christianity. But the early church, the reason it, it's not really true is the early church didn't celebrate Jesus's birthday. Celebration of birthdays was considered pagan. That's what the Romans did. So the early Christians didn't celebrate birthdays. What they were very interested in, though, was Christ's death and resurrection, which is the central premise of Christianity. I mean, Paul writes in Scripture uh, that they're to be fools and pitied if, if the resurrection isn't real. They were very interested in that. And when the church did start celebrating it, uh, it looks to be that they had their own reasons for it. And in fact, the, the Feast of the Unconquered Son, the Roman feast that Aurelian, uh, Aurelius decided everyone would celebrate, actually appears to be the Romans trying to co-opt December 25th uh, from the growing Christian minority that Aurelian persecuted. Now, to understand why the church celebrates Jesus' birthday on December 25th, you got to understand that the church, it was focused on his death and resurrection. And around 200 AD, Tertullian, one of the famous early church fathers, Tertullian lived in Carthage, and he was trying to find Christ's death and resurrection. And he settled on the date of the crucifixion for 14th of Nisan uh, as, the, as when he died. That would have been March 25th in the Roman calendar. Now, the thing that you got to know about early Christianity is that it, it and Judaism were a lot alike early on. In fact, Jews and Christians worshiped together in synagogues uh, until after, well, into the late hundreds and, and 200s AD, really. And they shared a common belief that the date that a prophet died was also the date that he was conceived. So if you died on March 25th, that means that that was the date of your conception. So go nine months from March 25th, where do you land? December 25th. Now, that was where the Western Church was getting its ideas from. Uh, but there was a division. The Western Church was largely Latin, the Eastern Church more mystical and, and Greek-oriented, and there was a different way that they came up with the exact same date. Okay, so the Western Church used Tertullian and said, okay, um, if he died on March 25th, he had to have been conceived on March 25th, let's march forward nine months, and it winds up being in our calendar. Now, keep in mind that's different from their calendar. The Gregorian calendar has changed things. I'm trying to use current dates for you. In the eastern half of the Roman Empire, uh, a different theory developed. Uh, Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, was in the priestly division of Abijah. 
And they knew the division of priests in the temple in Jerusalem when it fell to the Romans in 70 AD. And so they calculated back. When would Zacharias's class of priests have been in the temple? And they came, he would have been in the temple in October. And the Bible tells us that after Zacharias left the temple, his wife conceived John. And then Luke 1, 25, 26, notes six months later, Mary conceived Jesus. Well, that would put Mary conceiving Jesus around the end of March. When the western half of the empire was saying, well, he died on March 25th, therefore he must have been conceived on March 25th, and both sides were like, oh, Eureka, we've got the crucifixion resurrection date. And that's what they were interested in. But then they knew that you go nine months forward, when, when was his birth? December 25th. The earliest known records of when Christians began to celebrate Jesus' birthday were in Alexandria in Egypt around 200 A.D., a thousand years before anyone suggested that uh, Christianity corresponded to pagan holidays. By 300 AD, Christians around the world, around the Roman Empire at least, were beginning to celebrate Christmas as uh, Constantine became emperor and it was okay to celebrate birthdays and they set it as December 25th. Within 100 years, it was a formal church celebration. By 400 AD, everyone was doing this. And again, it looks more and more like the, the Romans responded under Aurelian to say, no, 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 we're going to use Saul Invictus, and that's going to be December 25th, not Jesus. Now, here's an important thing, and spare me your phone calls. They all got it wrong, more likely than not. Modern scholarship, modern biblical Orthodox scholarship suggests Jesus was probably actually born in the spring, uh, not in the wintertime. But that's not the important issue here. The important issue is why did the early Christian church set it for December 25th? They set it for December 25th, not because of Roman holidays, but because they came up with his date of when they thought he was crucified, and they were convinced that that had to have been his conception date as well, and they just went nine months forward. They may have gotten it wrong, but the important thing is they had really particular reasons unrelated to Roman pagan holidays for why they said it that way, and they were all based on trying to find his the date of his death and resurrection. Now, the more significant point here, of course, is whether or not he existed. I believe he did. And you got a lot of people now who say he didn't. You got to wipe a lot of history out to say he didn't exist. Um, I honestly think that the, the, the biggest fiction of Christmas is Silent Night. And I love the hymn, but this was no Silent Night. You had angels, the heavenly hosts singing. You had a baby being born. You had all the noises that come with pregnancy without an epidural. Uh, that was no Silent Night. But that silent night, when they set it for December 25th, they had legitimate sound reasons in their mind for doing it, had nothing to do with all the stuff you and I learned in public school growing up. When we come back, your phone calls, we'll get into the Secretary of State's race, the Mueller investigation, and can I just say, I'm not a huge fan of the president, y'all know this. I'm probably going to vote for him in 2020, but I am tired of the media dragging him into stories where they're just reading him into stuff. The, the supposed feuding at the funeral today is just obnoxious. It's nine after the hour. I'm Eric Erickson. This is Atlanta's Evening News on WSB, the full number 
1-800-WSB-TALK. Um, you know, so Charlie tweeted this out. I, I have to clean this up a little bit. You can you can go find him on Twitter if you want the original. But this point I made before we headed into the top of the hour news break, the media just is obsessed with Donald Trump. And Charlie tweeted out that, uh, the media are addicts. He's their drug. At this point, they're stealing from their mom's purse for drug money. Actually, they're in back alleys doing things I can't repeat on radio for drug money. The Trump detox uh, the media will go through when he's out of office is going to be something. Absolutely. They're going to need rehab. Uh, they need rehab right now. I. It, it really is just amazing to me uh, that they're fixed. They're, oh, this is a day to remember George H.W. Bush. Did you see Trump's reaction and Hillary Clinton's reaction to Donald Trump? Oh, my goodness. <gasps> it's just, it's it's insanity. They are addicted to covering Donald Trump. And it really is a symbiotic relationship, too. Uh, and Trump knows how to play them so well and get the media to respond to things and get them off message. He plays the media masterfully, absolutely masterfully. Now, I want to move in to, before we get into Mike Flynn and then back to the funeral with some the Alan Simpson uh, tribute was just very, very touching. Uh, he was one of my favorite senators back in the day. Uh, disagreed with him on a lot of stuff. He was was very pro-abortion, uh, but he was just a funny, funny guy. Uh, I've met him once and he's just a, just a delightful person. Uh, and there's something to be said for just the loss of being able to have friends across the aisle. Uh, the reaction sometimes when I've defended Jake Tapper or uh, Chuck Todd on here for things they've done and, or to admit that I'm friends with Donna Brazile or Paul Begala is just it, it's you're not allowed to have friends who disagree with you politically anymore. And it's sad um, because life is so much richer, richer by having friends you disagree with on politics. You find common ground in other areas and we're just not allowed to do that anymore. It's one of the uh, attacks on the Bushes that when they left office, they became friends with the Clintons and the Obamas. They're not to be trusted as a result, among other reasons. And that's just unfortunate, uh, really, really unfortunate that we live in a day and age like that. Uh, nonetheless, uh, I want to talk about Brad Raffensperger. He won. Uh, and credit to Mark Roundtree. Mark Roundtree is Raffensperger's consultant. And I get the sense that Raffensperger did not really listen towards the end to his consultant, who probably could have given him a bigger margin of victory than was had. Uh, Roundtree is a good consultant. We don't always agree on stuff, but he's a good consultant. And I've been saying several times, I don't know who the consultant is, but my God, what's going on? Well, it looks like he had a great consultant, just didn't listen to him. Our Secretary of State, let me put it to you this way. I have yet to find, and I have tried, I have tried to find Republicans in the legislature who have kind things to say about him, and I can't find them. Um, there was growing nervousness among his colleagues that he was throwing the race to Barrow. Uh, I found more Republicans who had nice things to say about Barrow than I did about people who had nice things to say about Raffensperger. None of them wanted Barrow to win. They all wanted Raffensperger to win, but none of them could figure out what exactly he was doing to win other than presuming that there would be more Republican turnout, and there was. He's going to have some bridge building he's going to need to do, particularly as Republicans in the legislature amp up conversations about election reform in Georgia. There just wasn't a lot of love there. And even the Republican base, many of them, uh, felt like he bought his his primary win against better candidates uh, by flooding the race with money and 
There's just there, there's not a lot of love there for the guy. And I think that's on him, not on the rest of them. And he can say that, well, he's a winner now. They're going to have to deal with it. Well, no, because you got a lot of other people with a lot more power and influence who can curtail the office of the Secretary of State. Um, look at what Jeff Duncan did coming from the House into the Senate, uh, building bridges there. Ravensburger's going to have to do some of that now. Um, but kudos to him and to Chuck Eaton for winning. Um, this does show that the margins of victory are getting closer and closer between the Republicans and Democrats, and the GOP needs to take notice of this. So um, the Republicans won with 51% of the vote. All things being equal, Democratic numbers went up in suburban areas again. There is definitely a backlash against the Republicans in the suburbs in Georgia, and that's going to harm the GOP long-term if they can't figure out a, a way around it. And I have looked at the data, y'all. I, I have looked at it, and listen, th there are so many people who are pushing the narrative that, oh my goodness, all these people, they, they become Democrats because of Donald Trump. I don't, I don't think that's the case. And the reason I don't think that's the case is that there is not a sudden shift on the issue of gun control. There's not a sudden shift on the issue of taxes. There's not a sudden shift on the issue of school choice. There's not a sudden shift on any of these issues. There's not a sudden shift on the abortion issue. The only thing that there's a sudden shift on is a, a dislike of the president and a dislike of anyone who um, wraps himself up in the president. And, you know, Republicans in Georgia are in a, a kind of catch-22 situation. I don't think Brian Kemp, had he not run the campaign he did in rural Georgia uh, and run as a Trump-like figure, I don't know that he would be the nominee. That's not to say he needed the president's endorsement. If you look at the early voting in the runoff, Brian Kemp won the early vote pretty handily. Uh, I, I think Brian Kemp would have won without the president's endorsement. But his early ads uh, did hurt him in the suburbs. I I mean, I, I can, I'd have to take off my shoes to be able to count the number of people I know who profoundly disliked his ads, and they're not Republicans. See, you and I are surrounded all the time with Republicans, good conservatives, and, and they were okay with the ads or they understood he's got to lock down the base, but you got these general-only voters who they're not Republicans, they tend to vote Republican, and they went with Stacey Abrams because they thought, oh gosh, we got one of those people. Well, they didn't, but they presumed it. They, they didn't take the time to get to know him for himself. Uh, the good thing for Brian Kemp moving forward is that he's got now four years to define himself as his own man and not to be in the shadow of Donald Trump. And I think he'll use that to his advantage. He's a very savvy politician and a good guy. When you get to know Brian Kemp, you like Brian Kemp. But the GOP as a whole does have this issue, and it affects even into the runoffs, uh, getting Republicans to turn out. They're going to have to pay attention to this issue. The president continues to hurt them in suburbs, and Republicans do not win elections generally nationwide without the suburbs. I say it that way because the next big election, the presidential election in 2020, and the president of the United States is going to have to win back the suburbs he won in 2016. But then he was running against Hillary Clinton, who people despised. So now he's going to have to make them despise whoever is her successor in the Democratic Party as much, if not more, than her. Uh, that You know, that's one thing Democrats tend to ignore, and this is something that the White House is paying attention to. If the election were held today, Donald Trump would still win because people hate Hillary Clinton that much. Yes, if the election were held today, 
Donald Trump would win because people don't like Hillary Clinton. He's not going to have Hillary Clinton in 2020, though. So he's going to have to make people loathe whoever it is the Democrats put up. Uh, and he'll have some runway to do it, thankfully, because the Democrats are going to have two billion candidates running. It is 26 after the hour. Uh, welcome back. I got to tell you, I'm uh, somewhat discombobulated in that I spent my day getting scans, uh, CT scans. Um, you know, I, I, I had the, it was six, several months ago and they wanted to do a rescan afterwards. And then they also wanted to just do the updated lung scan on clots. And my goodness gracious, I have never had to drink that awfulness, uh, that barium stuff. It was, I mean, it, it tasted like a, a, a craft beer. It is citrusy with a hint of vanilla and metal. I just, y'all, I'm, I'm not a huge, I'm not huge into a lot of crap. I just, I give me a Yingling or Miller Lite. I, I, I don't need my beer to taste like fruit. Um, I want beer to taste like beer, not, not some passion fruit papaya smoothie garbage nonsense. Um, but that's just me. Uh, your mileage may vary. Yeah, yeah, it's just, just hush, just hush. Um, yeah, I, I don't like cheese on my Philly cheesesteak either. Um, I'm weird that way, but you know what? That's, that's what I like. Deal with it. So I, I, I just, uh, it was awful. And so now I've had to have had to get home. I couldn't make it into the studio today. So I had to use the bunker and I've had a pot of coffee and now I'm chugging water just to flush everything out of my system. Um, the, the contrast and stuff, but everything is fine. It's just, uh, that is what I've been doing today. I had to actually come home and watch the funeral. I saw parts of it live, uh, but then had to come home and watch the rest of it uh, because there were parts I wanted to see, the the complete eulogy of Alan Simpson and the eulogy of uh, President Bush. Uh, it just, here's President Bush earlier today about his dad. And we're going to miss you. Your decency, sincerity, and kind soul will stay with us forever. So through our tears, let us know the blessings of knowing and loving you, a great and noble man, the best father a son or daughter could have. And in our grief, let us smile knowing that dad is hugging Robin and holding mom's hand again. Oh, lost it with that. He, I mean, he... He broke down. If, if you've ever met him, you, you know, he's he jokes that he's from a family of criers. Uh, and, and he tried to hold it together, but it was hard for him today. I just, man, I'm, I feel for the family. That is a close-knit family, and that is a testament to George and Barbara Bush um, raising good kids. When we come back, the Mueller investigation has a surprise for everyone. Turns out there actually is a criminal investigation, but who of? They've redacted the name. There are some theories cropping up today I'll tell you about. It is 39 after the hour. I'm Eric Erickson here. Let's get into the Mueller investigation. Uh, he has released his court documents on General Mike Flynn and has recommended no jail time for Mike Flynn for two reasons. Uh, one, 
Flynn's extraordinary cooperation and to his long military service and dedication to the country. Um, there are a couple of things that in the partisan pushback over this are, are getting ignored or distracted from. Uh, one is that uh, Mike Flynn did actually lie about his conversations with uh, the Russian ambassador. Now, I don't think that Flynn's communications with the Russian ambassador in the run-up to the inauguration were illegal. He is the incoming national security advisor to the president. He had every right to talk to them and every right to suggest to them that American policy would be changing. There's nothing illegal there. Uh, the illegality, a reminder that the cover-up is usually worse than the crime, the illegality is that he lied about it, uh, and not just to the FBI, which was bad enough, he lied about it to Vice President Pence. Sally Yates comes into this. Sally Yates tipped off the White House that Flynn was lying about this stuff. Um, the reason we know it is because the United States was listening in on conversations not from Flynn. This is a key that's being distorted by partisans. They were not listening in on Flynn. They were not wiretapping Flynn. They were wiretapping a Russian agent who worked inside the United States who was Flynn's go-between with the Russian ambassador. That's how they knew about it. The U.S. government was spying on this Russian spy. And Flynn apparently knew that they were listening in and still had conversations with the guy and then lied about it to the vice president. Sally Yates tipped off the White House. That's why Flynn was fired. Uh, Flynn also lied about what he was doing for Turkey while he was on government payroll and while he was advising the president's campaign. From those things, the Mueller team had him, and they had 19 interviews with Mike Flynn. And in those 19 interviews, he provided enough information and corroborating information that other people were willing to talk openly with the Mueller team, making the Mueller team's job easier. And some of those people are going to jail. Keep in mind, for those who think that this investigation is, is a sham, uh, the president's national security advisor has pled guilty. The president's campaign manager is off to jail. The president's deputy campaign manager and aide to the campaign manager is off to jail. And several others have been indicted, including the president's lawyer uh, who has taken a plea. This is this is not a small thing, even though now it, it's gone from there's no there there to this doesn't involve the president to this is just small ball. It doesn't suggest that it is small ball. The reason it doesn't suggest it's small ball is because of a redaction. One of the things in the Mueller, um, one of the things in the Mueller filing in court, is a heading that says blank. It's redacted out. Criminal investigation. The Mueller investigation, contrary to what people have said all along, the Mueller investigation was never a criminal investigation. It was an intelligence gathering operation to see what the Russians had done. Now, certainly people pled guilty along the way, and they all pled guilty because they lied to the investigators, among other things. But now we know there actually is a criminal investigation. We don't know what that criminal investigation is, but there is a suggestion that it may be directly about the president of the United States. Um, so if you, if you take one of the references to President Donald J. Trump in the Mueller filing, and you measure it out typographically in the PDF, and then you put those words over the redacted blank criminal investigation, it lines up perfectly. And some people are saying, hmm, I wonder if this says... President Donald J. Trump criminal investigation. 
because each of the headlines begins with someone's name or some specific and then what it's about. And it fits, but we don't know. Everything in there is redacted. We have no idea. The only thing we know for sure is that there is an ongoing criminal investigation now. People have speculated about it. People have hinted at it. We now know for sure. Um, this, by the way, is a measure of how little the Mueller team leaks in that this is a surprise to everyone. If you, if you, if you put a gun to my head and said, tell me, well, I, if I was forced to have to tell you what I think, here's what I think. There's no collusion between the president and the Russians to steal the election. There were attempts by idiots around the president to try to get the Russians to smear Hillary Clinton. There was no act of collusion to steal the election, unlike what Democrats think. I suspect this is about the Trump organization itself, that the, the investigation spiraled into how these contacts were made, how there were pre-existing contacts, which turned into the Trump organization, had at some point or another been used for illegitimate purposes to launder money. It is all speculation on my part. I do not know, but that is my guess. Based on the records, they've gone after bank records for the Trump organization. They've looked at the Trump organization finances. Uh, I suspect this is all in some way related to originally things not involving the presidential campaign. This is one of the dangers of having a special prosecutor. The investigation stretched out into other areas, and people are getting round up now because of those areas. That, I suspect, is what's going on here. But again, I have no way of knowing, and neither do you. The Mueller team isn't leaking. So it's all speculation at this point. Let's go back to the phones. Chris incoming. You are up next. Welcome. Hey, Eric. Hi there. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. Thanks. Um, thanks for taking my call. So, sure. look, I've heard nothing but good things about George Bush over the last five days. And I'm just confused, man. And I, I'm looking for your opinion and your thought on I, I know firsthand that he was a proponent of Agenda 21 and the New World Order, which doesn't seem to be anything good about that. Just curious what your thoughts are on that. I, I think that uh, Agenda 21 and the New World Order is kind of what conspiracy theorists tell us bedtime stories. Um, there's not a lot of there there. Uh, Agenda 21 never went anywhere. This was kind of a, a U.N. global conference. It never would have made it through the U.S. Senate. It was never ratified in the United States. A lot of people bring it up as a spooky New World Order stuff. I, I think you have to understand that George H.W. Bush was a product of World War II. And one of the prevailing ideas in the World War II generation is that the League of Nations had collapsed because it was weak and that if we had stronger international institutions with the United States leading the way, that we would be able to build a strong world that would not descend back into a global world war, this time with nuclear weapons. So, yeah, George H.W. Bush was a strong proponent of the international order. Look at the coalition he built, bringing the Soviets into the table even to get Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. Uh, and then after the fall of the Soviet Union, working very, very hard to bring everyone to the table to prevent NATO expansion eastward, uh, which later presidents uh, gave up on and expanded eastward uh, because he wanted a stable world. And he believed that strong world coalitions could do this. And Agenda 21 
was an idea of trying to find some global footing in the post-Soviet, post-Cold War era where countries could find some common ground on, on the way forward. It didn't work. Uh, and he was not ever going to give up American sovereignty. I mean, his whole point that has been deeply misinterpreted by conspiracy theorists, by the way, is that he put the United States in the lead. He genuinely, fundamentally believed that the United States was Reagan's shining city on the hill, and we were the last best hope for mankind. So if you were to build international institutions and put the United States at the center seat, uh, in charge that we would have a peaceful, stable world order. Uh, you can agree with him or disagree with him. It never went anywhere, and he was never a huge proponent of it. It was just something the U.S. government ultimately did. Bill Clinton gave up altogether and focused on NAFTA and things like that that Bush also had pushed forward. Now, when we come back, I'm sticking around for Mark Aram, and we're going to go into Mark Aram's show, but I'll still be here.